In the two weeks since our last show, there's been a complete shift in our culture surrounding the future of fans at stadiums. You may remember Grant and I were still a bit skeptical that we'd see full college football stadiums this fall. From my perspective, the skepticism did not stem from me thinking the act of filling a stadium was unsafe, but rather, I wasn't sure if schools would have the guts to declare, hey, our stadium's fully back open. If you want to, come on in. I use the word guts because a lot of COVID-related discussion still revolves around PR and optics. In other words, even if a school wanted to open up fully, would those in charge decide against full opening because they wanted to appear to be taking a cautious and extra safe approach? Now, I still think we'll see a bunch of that happening in all of sports in different states and cities for the rest of the year. But as of now, you won't see that at Memorial Stadium in Norman this fall. Joe Castiglione is planning to have max capacity at Owen Field for this upcoming football season. Good. Credit to Oklahoma State, by the way. The Cowboys announced plans for a full stadium last month. OU is just now catching up with its announcement. Now, of course, with that news came the caveat of safety, as expected. I'm sure masking at Owen Field will either be mandatory or strongly encouraged when the Sooners begin their home slate September the 11th against Western Carolina. Now, it would be fantastic if I'm wrong about that because I think that would mean COVID is very much in the rearview mirror. But even if simple masking is the key to expanding the attendance from 22,000, 23,000 all the way back to 86,000, then I'll take it. Now, other schools have announced plans for full stadiums this fall, including Alabama, Clemson, and Texas. NFL stadiums are reportedly expected to be at 75% this fall, and that number isn't set in stone. By September, I would bet some teams will be full up to 100%, if they have that choice, that is. Of course, college basketball fans have been able to watch OU and OSU games all season long inside the Lloyd Noble Center and inside Gallagher-Iba Arena. Sure, it's not at full capacity, but it's still a good start. Even in the NBA, a league that has been incredibly cautious when it comes to COVID, has allowed limited amounts of fans in multiple cities. Actually, more than half of the NBA has fans right now. But strangely, not the Thunder, who announced recently that they will not allow fans at Chesapeake Energy Arena this year. When the two biggest college basketball teams in the state have had fans all season long at limited capacity, but the NBA team isn't going to have fans all season long, uh, kind of seems like something's going on behind the scenes there, but this is not a Thunder podcast, so I'm not going to speculate. Now, the positive stadium news comes in addition to cases plummeting here in the United States. Here are the facts. The first week of January 2021, there were 1,643,000 positive COVID cases in the United States. Last week, there were only 450,000 positive COVID cases. That's almost 1.2 million fewer cases in just two months' time. And in Oklahoma, the first week of January, we saw 24,000 positive COVID cases. Last week, just 4,500 Vaccine distribution has been really good all across the country, especially in Oklahoma. According to the New York Times, almost 21% of the state has received at least one dose of the vaccine, and nearly 12% of Oklahoma has been fully vaccinated. 
Oklahoma's outpacing Texas, Florida, New York, California, and many other states in vaccine distribution. The point is, we've got a narrative shift, everybody. More and more Americans seem to be okay with the idea of full stadiums this fall. And when September rolls around, I do think college football fans will put their money where their mouth is, if they're allowed to. I'm Lee Benson. This is West of Everest. We're back. It's March. Spring football starts in less than two weeks. Pro day this Friday. Football is about to get interesting again. Topics on today's show will be uh, more full capacity attendance talk. We'll get Grant's thoughts on that story. With spring practice starting on March the 22nd, which Oklahoma players need to have a big spring? We'll debate that today. We'll talk about the offensive players today, and we'll save defense for later. Plus, did you see ESPN's top 60 college quarterbacks since 2000, uh, the, the top 60 list that they put out recently? It came out a little bit ago, I know that, but we haven't talked about it, so we will tackle that story later on in the podcast. So just a quick reminder that you can like the West of Everest Facebook page to stay up to date with the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Lee Benson News 9. Grant is at Grant Benson 25. And feel free to reach out to us on social, social media or however else you see fit. So with that, time to welcome in Grant. Grant, what's going on today? Uh, nothing much going on today, Lee. Still kind of reeling from, uh, from jinxing the OU basketball team two weeks ago. Uh, but, uh, you know, so yeah, any, any OU basketball fan, you can uh, direct all of your ire at me. I said, was it two weeks ago today when we were recording was the Tuesday night they lost to Kansas State, uh, who is a, it's just yeah. a truly, truly horrible basketball team. Um, and uh, yeah, they haven't won since. So I, I apologize. And that was after I said that this is a sweet 16 caliber team. So yeah, I, I, I definitely deserve all the jeers after that one. Yeah, I didn't know you had that kind of power, but they have not won a basketball game since you said that on the podcast, and I did not see that coming. The, the, all the losses have been close, but it just shows you the the fine kind of margin Oklahoma plays at where they can be a top 10 type team, but um, everything has to kind of go right for them uh, to, to get there. If not, then you know they lose these games, and now... They're playing uh, Iowa State in the Big 12 tournament on the day that this podcast will be coming out, uh, Wednesday, I guess t- tomorrow for us, uh, Wednesday the 10th. And they should beat Iowa State. Not that this is an Oklahoma basketball podcast, but I will say, and I could go back and look at the, the stats just to back it up. But ever since I've been here at News 9, I've been back in Oklahoma City working for, I've been here for almost four and a half years now. And that is, um, I guess, probably three or four basketball seasons, whatever the math is there for, I guess. But, uh, and you could, you could tell me you know, prior to, you know, 2016 or whatever, uh, Oklahoma under Lon Kruger in the big 12 tournament, they don't win a lot of games. They're hideous. Um, like, they don't win is, in the big 12 tournament under, under Lon. I think right? they've, I think they've literally won two games in the big 12 tournament in his tenure. Uh, and both of them were in this like play in game type type deal, I believe. Okay. Um, so when so, they do win them, they win these games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they've but they've lost these games too. Like when they are the higher seed under Kruger. So, uh, which is weird. You know, that's that's been kind of just I. There's been just some really weird ticks about his tenure. Like they can't they can't win in Manhattan for whatever reason. 
you know, they're they can't win in the Big Twelve tournament. Uh, they have, you know, I under Kruger they've been like fairly successful in the NCAA tournament. Uh, you know, getting to the Sweet Sixteen at least twice, Final Four once. Uh, I think they've got, you know, they got to the second round a couple years ago. Uh, the last time they were in the tournament, they won their first round game. So um, it's yeah, it's weird. They're a really weird team. Um, I think you know they they've shown the capability to to sort of beat kind of anyone like in that maybe like five to 10 range, like rank in the country. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think they're, I don't think they can beat Baylor or Gonzaga or anything like that, but I don't know. You never know. They could get, they have enough guys who, you know, it's, it's conceivable. They could all get hot at the right time and hopefully they're just getting all the poison out right now. But history suggests that this is kind of the, this is the long Kruger late season swoon. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Hmm. So the last time Oklahoma won a game in the Big 12 tournament was in that final four season. And actually, they beat Iowa State in the first game of the Big 12 tournament. You know, whatever. I, I'm going to guess that was probably, uh, you know, did they have a bye? I mean, they were really good that year. So no, they, they, probably they were playing that opening. They were the game. two yeah. seed. Yeah, they would have been the two seed. Yeah. OK. OK. So they beat Iowa State and then they lost to West Virginia. Uh, and I think wasn't that a really heartbreaking loss. Yeah, game, because like, yeah, a, uh, healed hit yeah. a uh, half court shot that I think would have won the game, but he he got it off like a tenth of a second too late. Oh, okay. So yeah, I wasn't. Uh, yeah, so it was March of 2016, the last time Oklahoma won a game in the Big 12 tournament. So hopefully that changes. Hopefully they they get that W and they beat Iowa State uh, on Wednesday. But uh, so anyways, yeah, that's enough. Probably OU basketball talk for now. If uh, they start doing things in the tournament. As this uh, podcast goes on, we'll get back to it. Yeah, and uh, kind of in uh, what in the winter of 2018, we this kind of turned into a Trey Young podcast for a hot minute while they were awesome, and then and then the late season, the late season long Kruger swoon happened, and the rest is history. Yeah, and remember that season? OU played, I think, the very first game of the tournament against Rhode Island. It was like the the very first tip off, I think, on that Thursday morning or late Thursday morning. Do you recall that? And it was a good game. I think it went yeah, to overtime. It was, it was a good and, game. I, I, and they lost. Trey Young hit a three to put them up by one with like 30 seconds to go in the game. And then, of course, they, they pissed down their leg. But it, it's okay. It's okay, everyone. All right, Grant, let's talk football. And I want to get your comments on essentially what I talked about in the opening take. Do you kind of sense, are you like me, do you sense a shift in maybe tone or maybe narrative around sports or just our, our culture in the last couple of weeks kind of surrounding fans and full stadiums? Or is it just me? Because the last time we talked about this stuff, just two weeks ago, we were both kind of on the same page of like, yeah, I mean, full stadiums would be great, but I'm not so sure that, that we're going to be there yet based on kind of, you know, you know, licking our finger, putting it up into the air and kind of judging how the wind was blowing, just kind of with the vibe of the country. It still didn't seem just two weeks ago that – that people were looking towards full stadiums in mass, but now it, it kind of seems maybe that's more of the thought. What do you think? I'm not sure if I, if I sense kind of the same cultural shift that you are. Um, and I only say that just because when I look at like national polls about coronavirus, there's uh, that still kind of bears out that people are still pretty risk averse to that. Um, so, you know, it, it did surprise me though over the last two weeks when I've heard, you know, when we've heard different universities come out and say, that yes, we are planning on having a full stadium. That surprised me. Um, I, I was um, it took t- taken aback a little bit by that, uh, just because 
it's it's just a long time between now and then, and just there's lots of variables. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen, and so um, at this stage, like I'm I'm encouraged that yeah that that's that they have their eye towards a full stadium uh, in the fall. But kind of me just knowing that it's I, I still just don't know yet. We we don't know what the trajectory of the virus is going to look like. And and granted, right now it's it's looking a lot better. It's and and getting better every single day as well. Um, you know, I just I culturally I don't know where we are. I don't know what's going to happen. What if there's, you know, what if there is like a, a small spike after it being virtually zero? Is is the culture going to freak out or is everyone going to go about like business as usual? And that's, those, those are, you know, I don't know the answers to those questions. Yeah. And it comes with the caveat. You brought up a good point. I mean, it's still a long ways away and that's why Joe Castiglione and uh, the president Harris, uh, you know, that their language is like, we're planning for it as opposed to, Oh, for sure this is going to happen. And I think the idea is that of course things can change. I mean, we know, or everyone knows of the last year, we're all used to just things changing at the drop of a hat. So it doesn't mean that it's 100% going to happen on September 11th when Oklahoma plays Western Carolina. It's just it's similar to kind of what we talked about last episode with the Big 12 releasing its schedule and having a normal schedule as opposed to a schedule that had a bunch of bye weeks built in that made it, you know, that maybe you think, oh, are they building in a bunch of bye weeks because they're concerned about coronavirus being a problem again like it was in 2020 well based on the schedule that the big 12 put out it would seem that they were planning on covid not being very impactful at all and now that you hear from ou clemson texas alabama credit to oklahoma state for announcing it even before all these other schools that yeah right now yeah we're, we're, we're planning for it. we like uh, the stats are great the vaccines rolling out there's going to be by september a lot more people will have been vaccinated uh, we expect the numbers and the stats to be better that's kind of what I think that's what everyone's betting on. And I think that's a fair bet because in my mind, I mean, the more people get the vaccine, uh, the more people that have already had COVID, you know, you get more and more closer, closer and closer to the herd immunity. And the only question to me at this point is how long does a vaccine last? Is it going to turn into the same thing as a flu shot where you, you know, everyone, you, if you want it, you go and get it once a year and then boom, you're, you're probably not going to get the flu. Like I've had pretty good success with my flu shot the last few years since I've been getting it. I have not gotten the flu. I know some people don't have the same success with the flu shot, but I think all the stats so far with all the COVID vaccines, and granted, I know it's very early, but I think the statistics for the COVID vaccines are even more reliable than flu shot vaccines. So I think all of that news is good news, and that's why you're seeing the shift to thinking, yep, by September, which is six months from now, we're going to be in a much better spot based on what we know now, we believe. And then, of course, if something does happen or something changes, then then they'll adjust. But uh, I, I think it's the prudent, smart message to, to put forth by Oklahoma and these other schools because I think that's what the stats and the evidence bears out right now that we are seeing across the board, whether it's cases uh, going down and then the vaccine distribution really, really good. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's pretty safe to say at this point it's, it's extremely unlikely that the COVID situation is going to be worse in fall 2021 than it was in fall 2020. Right. Um, so I'm sure, I'm, oh, I'm yeah, sure that absolutely. is, that's informing a lot of their decisions, but also at the same time, I mean, if you want to get down to brass tacks, uh, we're at the point right now where, you know, public policy towards COVID it's, you know, the science or AKA the science and stuff like that is certainly not the only consideration anymore. And the truth of the matter is, is that there's, there's probably political pressure on these, on these schools to announce hundred percent capacity. 
And as long as there's political pressure to do so, that's what it's going to be. Um, until that status quo changes, which it could. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think they got their eyes set on the ball or uh, eyes set on the prize here. So um, as a college football fan, of course, I'm energized by that news. I'm glad that that's that's what they're that's what they're working towards. Um, I just, you know, I'm 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 just really shell shocked over the last year. Um, you know, we know one thing and then we don't know it anymore. Uh things change things have changed uh on a weekly basis during this thing um and um i just i think there's just a you know in in the in the political sense of it there's just so much time between now and and september um and just who who knows what could happen what you know who who knows what could be the next uh you know cultural thing that causes a lockdown i i don't know i, I don't know what it's going to be yeah, the politics is is certainly something you take into consideration. You mentioned that maybe there's political pressure to uh, to these schools from maybe certain states or politicians or I guess even from uh, donors and boosters or whatever to, hey, yeah, we want full stadiums. Uh, but on the other hand, in, in other cities and states, could there be political pressure doing saying the other thing like, hey, I you you shouldn't do full. Absolutely. Like, keep it more limited or you know, and that's where it's. And that's where I guess it's whatever your perspective is, uh, you know, whether, you know, if you're into politics or not or current event, whatever your 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 thought process is, you you can decide whatever you think is better or worse or if either way, it, it's nothing. And from my perspective, I, you know, I, I didn't even think of it as a political thing, to be honest with you, because um, in my mind, it's it's it comes down to will these these schools uh, will like optically I, I talked about it a little bit in the opening take, but by September, will there be leaders at some of these schools and then in the NFL that are still afraid of the optics of saying, hey, 100% capacity is allowed, whereas even if they're kind of cool with that, they, they, they don't want to, they still think like maybe public, per, uh, you know, the, the public will think that, that that's a bad look or something. I don't know whether, whether that's a right thing to do or a wrong thing to do. That's kind of why I look at it more so than potential political pressure. But I guess maybe that's maybe that kind of goes hand in hand. And I'm it's kind of one in the I'm same, not, I uh, would say. Yeah, maybe I'm not getting into the nuance of it enough. But so anyways, it's, yeah, that's, I just, that's kind of boring. I, you know, I, I just hope by the time we get to September, or it, you know, it's probably going to be August when these decisions are made. I just hope we're to a point where um, the facts on the ground with COVID, coronavirus and all of that stuff, it's, it's just not feasible to to limit the capacity um that that's where i hope we are and i hope that it's you know it's it gets to that point where we, it doesn't have to break down by political partisan lines like like everyone knows that it is now so um uh yeah i just man i i just want a full stadium for college football and i i want it to be safe as well and if they can do that uh then i'm i'm all for for the you know the 100 percent capacity and even so like i i have zero problem with them mandating masks inside the stadium if that's what it takes if if that's what it takes to get people in you know butts in the seats of all these stadiums do it like do it yesterday for for all i'm concerned yeah and again like i said in the opening take i hope i'm wrong about that it'd be nice if we get to the point where x percentage of the population has been vaccinated or the vaccines are all readily available and it's easy to get if you want one and there's really no excuse you know either either you want it or you don't or whatever whatever your decision is and then based off of that maybe then they say all right well i mean the vaccines are available uh the cases are where they are maybe they're super low and now maybe we don't even need to have mask mandates or maybe you know it's just like 
we, we encourage you to do it if you want, but you don't have to. You know, it, it ends up being something like that. And I think that's the best case scenario that we could hope for. But yeah, again, like if, if we're still there at that point and they're mandating it, whatever, fine. It's, it, if we're going to be full stadiums and that's the key, then I'll live with that. Cool. Uh, and so I so do think, that. though, I, I do think, you know, once, once more schools kind of announce this and once we get closer to the season, the dominoes will fall. Um, it's, it's almost, I mean, almost exactly like, you know, the big 10 coming back and playing this fall and, uh, and all the other conferences, it was once one fell, all the others fell. And so, um, I, I think the same thing is probably going to happen with stadium capacity and, uh, you know, we'll see where it's at. I'm, I, I, I saw just right before we got on to record this, that, um, the owner of the San Diego Padres said that he's not ruling out hundred percent capacity, uh, by the end of the season. I mean that's in that's in California. Um, I, I uh, just here in Minnesota, we're one of uh, only three states I think that haven't uh, that have no nobody in the stands. Nobody can do anything at all. Uh, but there's there's talk that you know um, in the coming days that the Twins are going to announce that they're able to have quarter full stadium. So um, like as yeah, it's 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 going to be a thing where I think. You know, once the dominoes start to fall, it's going to be it's going to catch like wildfire. And then and then, you know, once everyone gets a taste of freedom, they're going to want it. So, I mean, that's just, that's just how human nature works. I agree. All right. Let's uh, table that for now. We'll get back to hot capacity talk whenever there's more news that comes about in the future. Let's move over to spring practice discussion. We haven't really talked much about spring ball yet in the offseason. And I know a lot of our listeners are have been asking for us to to talk about individual players and break break you know it spring ball down as much as we can and we've kind of got to the point where okay it, we're still waiting we're not quite there yet but now that we're a couple weeks away from spring practice beginning let's dive into it and the spring game by the way is going to be on Saturday April the 24th and that's not going to be full capacity it's going to be 25% capacity uh, like it was during the 2020 season and when I saw that, I mean, there's a that's an easy just spring game crowd joke right there, right, Grant? Where uh, that's the spring game usually is about whatever you know, 25 to 35 percent capacity. I mean, honestly, with Lincoln Riley though, here it's it's been a little more because they've been trying to get more and more people in the stands. Uh, but I mean, I know people have joked or were complaining about how some of the games, the feel. I know some of our listeners messaged in kind of the feel of the 2020 season, some of those home games kind of had a spring game feel to it because only 22, 23,000 fans were in the stadium. And yeah, I kind of got a little bit of that too. Uh, since I went to so many games, I kind of got used to it and I didn't really think much of the spring game atmosphere after the first game I went to. But I totally get if, you know, you went to one game last fall, it, it felt like a spring game to you in a lot of ways. So anyways, 25% capacity for spring game, which, it, okay, I mean, it, it's not going to feel that weird, much you know, that much more weird than it normally would, I think, for any spring game. Did they, I, I guess I didn't, did they announce a game time for that? Is it in the afternoon or are they going to? I don't believe they announced a time. I think more details are still to come. Because, you know, I mean, the, the last spring game they had was on a Friday night, uh, like 7.30, and it, it was, I mean, it was the best spring game they've ever had. So um, from like an event standpoint, and I know, I, I know they're, they're still probably a little handcuffed for what they can do, you know, this this school year. Uh, but I, I really hope that they haven't ruled out in the future that Friday night spring game. And I know, you know, that could be tough for some recruits maybe to get in, get there by Friday night. But um, I, I know Lincoln Riley, until the pandemic hit, they wanted to use that spring game as like their big recruiting thing where they, you know, they were going to get the, 
the big guys in early, get them signed or not, uh, get them committed early, and so they can start building classes. And obviously, they're kind of you know they've had to rethink that you know all of that in the era of COVID. So, you know, I, I'm a guy who is um, when the when the spring game gets here, you know, I'm slightly excited for it just because it's OU football and I love it. Uh, but you know, a lot of the times when you watch a spring game, you know, the spring gaminess of it really does take over. Um, and so, <laughs> I, uh, I I I I appreciated it, you know, on on that Friday night a couple years ago, and and of course it was a big deal because that was the first time we were seeing Jalen Hurts, and uh, but I mean it's it's kind of the same deal this year. Like I you know I want to see Caleb Williams, um, and I want to see uh, I want to see Micah Bowens, the transfer from Penn State. Like those are the guys that I'm kind of excited to see. Um, and so, yeah, hopefully they got a really good stage this year to do that. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of see as, as the information trickles out more, man, thinking back to this time last year, (laughs) how quaint does it seem to remember that there was discussions at this time, uh, again, a year ago before the pandemic hit, I think they were trying to figure out, Oh, is it going to be another night game? For the spring game, I don't know if it had been announced yet. I don't know if the time had been announced, and because the Friday night one you'd mentioned was such a such a success, and so there was a, I think maybe one of our podcasts or like discussion throughout OU Sooner Nation was kind of like, oh, I wonder. I mean, yeah, it's going to be on a Saturday this year, but are they going to have another primetime kickoff under the lights? That was kind of neat, and that <laughs> it just seems like so. Oh wow, what what a time to be alive! Back when that was like something to talk about, as opposed to a, uh, you know some virus that no one had ever heard of before until uh, a year ago. So, but yeah, yeah, we'll see if they do under the lights again. That would be neat. I mean, it definitely gives a different kind of feel to the spring game. It makes it feel a little more important. Definitely. Yeah. There was just, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those, those afternoon spring games, they just, they kind of have a, when they're in the afternoon and it's only, you know, I, I, I think they've gotten like 40,000 there before, you know, for the spring game, it kind of just feels like a, it feels like you're playing on the road somewhere against a team that sucks and they don't they can't fill up their stadium. <laughs> that's that's kind of what it feels like sometimes. Yeah, it does feel like that. That's interesting. All right, so you want to talk about offensive players and who on the Oklahoma roster are in need of a big spring. And so I want to start this by asking you, what do you mean by by big spring? Like is and so in here I'll just go into more detail. Is it simply like, oh, you know, because obviously we can't really watch them practice. I can't imagine they're going to let, for instance, like me or the rest of the media in to shoot a couple of times of practice like we normally do. It's probably not going to happen this year. So we're not going to see anything. So is this simply like, oh, whenever we watch the spring game, who has a really nice spring game? That, that's who needs to have a big spring because like we haven't seen them play. Or do you have another way of judging how a guy had a big spring or not? I'm I'm talking about the guys that need to put forth. Um, they need to start showing signs that in the fall they are going to be, you know, uh, an important player for OU. Or um, I essentially this is this is a guys that I think are most important to develop over the next six months uh, for OU to be successful in the fall. That, that's that's essentially what this is, and it always it starts with spring practice uh, because this is when you're mostly in the weight room. Uh, this is for a lot of these guys, um, even, you know, even guys who are in the, on their second year on the team, this is going to be their first spring ball that they're going to go through uh, for the most part. 
and there's you know a lot of progress can be made in these in these 15 practices um because the coaches are allowed to be around the players they're in the weight room uh and it's just um they're around each other for the first time and this is where you this is where you kind of start to build that camaraderie uh the team cohesion and uh we said it multiple times on this on this podcast over the last you know over the last few months if OU is going to win a national title in 2021 it's going to be one starting in two weeks on, you know, it, it's going to be one between March 24th and, and September 3rd when they, when they kick off for the first or before they kick off for the first time. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it, it's important, especially because this is kind of the kickoff of their new season. So I think it's important for guys to get off, a, get off to a good start and, you know, and, and sort of announce to the team uh, that they are here, they're leaders and, and they're ready to make an impact. So I, I guess then what this is for you is guys that you are wanting to do something this spring to separate themselves from others or stand out, whether or not, I mean, because like, we're not going to be able to really know it aside from asking questions to Alex Grinch and Lincoln Riley and some of the guys. So this is just, uh, okay, I, I, I see what you mean. So I think yeah, okay. essentially, I was, so I'm, I'm making this more complicated than it should be. No. Uh, essentially, I, these are these are the five guys I think need to step up within the next six months for OU to have a national okay. championship level offense. Essentially, gotcha, gotcha. And we're gonna do offense today. We'll do defense. I think I might have said this already. We'll do defense uh, next podcast. So, all right. So you have a list of five. You were the one that did uh, all the the legwork today and put in a lot of time in. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna listen to what your list is or you can go one by one and then I can kind of react based off of that and then whatever else comes to my mind off the top of my head then I will obviously add that to the show as well so go ahead with your list how did you come about this list what were your uh, uh, requirements it's not really requirements it's more of just uh you know the players that I that I think <laughs> need to step up need to improve it's not okay you know I right. didn't I'm not looking at any stats or anything like that I'm not um you know, this is this is just my opinion. So um, I did um, I, I did rank these uh, from you know five to one, and you can look at it as you know from from least important to most important. But all five of these guys are important. Uh, and so Lee, I'll, I'll all right, hold kick on, it off. Hold on, before you go, before you go, actually, I, I just does this sound like it might be interesting? So instead of you actually going down the list of like whatever you're in the actual order that you've ranked them, what if you just randomly? said them all out of order and then i can guess what your ranking is who you think is most does that sound like something that'd be interesting i uh, maybe but i was i was kind of hoping to get a little <laughs> bit of the dramatic effect right of, of the countdown oh, like, oh gosh okay. who's who's gonna be number one who does he gotta say you know um if okay, that you know that's if, probably if, better if, if we get that's halfway better. through this and it's not working then you know we can have a we can have a bit of an on-air production <laughs> meeting and figure it out but uh i you know all I, right no i think your idea your idea is better but the chances are this is going to turn into something that we think we're going to spend 10 minutes talking about, and it turns into 90 minutes, as, as, as so happens always on this podcast. Uh, so I will kick it off, Lee, with number five on my list, most important players on the offense that need to have a big spring. Andrew Rame is number five for me. Um, and so here's, here's the reasoning behind that. Uh, the interior of the offensive line desperately needs somebody to push them. Um, and so in this scenario, I'm kind of assuming that Chris Murray is going to be uh, the starting center uh, on the year. And then after that, it, it goes to those those two guard spots, which I think everyone can say the last two seasons have been really inconsistent. 
Uh, Marquise Hayes, I think, is uh, has been more consistently excellent than Tyrese Robinson has, but still inconsistent. Um, and then Tyrese Robinson, you know, for the most part, has has been kind of an average to below average player for OU the last two seasons. Um, and this isn't the first time I've made this point, but he desperately needs somebody to push him. Um, and you know, this if 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 he is a starter on game one, that'll be this will be his third consecutive year as a starter. Um, and I, you know, I don't I, I I don't think the first two years I don't think the returns are great. Um, and I, I think, you know, a lot of those guys, the, the offensive line the last two years, I think, has been the weak point of the offense. Um, and and I, th- I think we all just sort of assumed that, you know, Bill Biedenboe's got this. Uh, but, you know, I there's there's definitely been times the last two seasons where the offensive line has failed them. Um, and I'm not I'm not putting it all on Tyrese Robinson, uh, but he, he needs to get better. He has been the weakest link on that offensive line. Um, and so, you know, my hope is that Andrew Rame. It, you know, has a big spring, has a big summer, and takes that job from him. I, I think if that were to happen, that is that is evidence that this is a healthy offense. That that they are they're getting good and, and where they need to be getting good. I hate that. I scrub that. I hate. I hated that. Uh, they're you know they're getting to the point where they need to be. <laughs> okay, okay. And you talked about Andrew Ram a lot uh, towards the end of the season. I think in some of our post Cotton Bowl podcast so I'm not that surprised to hear his name on the list and your general thoughts on the offensive line I think are fair Uh, I I feel like every time we talk about the offensive line I'm required to say listen I'm not an expert on offensive line play so I I don't know how effective or ineffective Marquise Hayes and Tyrese Robinson have been in my mind I think they've both been pretty good but maybe I don't know maybe I'm wrong I, I but right or wrong the point still stands that any sort of depth and competition inside there will serve the whole entire team better and Andrew Rame is a player I know that he was talked up quite a bit uh, in in the offseason I think leading into 2020 along uh, along with um, help me out who's the uh, the other young player that that played this past year he might be on your list too Anton Harrison the tackle Harrison yeah it was always Anton Harrison and Andrew Rame were the two young young true freshman linemen that always seem to get a lot of uh, talk from Bill Biedenboe and some of their teammates whenever you know, the, the times you got to talk to people on Zoom uh, during, the, during preseason and also when the season began. So uh, he's certainly a player, at least back then, that had a lot of upside. And, yeah, it would be nice to see a, a guy like that with so much potential, in theory, uh, take that step. And after not having a spring ball last year as a freshman, obviously his first spring ball at Oklahoma – uh, is incredibly crucial and, and if you can take advantage of that yes that'll that'll be good for the team and uh, that goes without saying so I, I like number five Andrew Ram I like that one on your list and so you know and, and Bill Biedenboe like, he he likes to experiment during the spring so I, I mean I I can almost guarantee that Andrew Ram is probably going to be at multiple positions this spring along with a lot of other people so um, I, I think kind of the wild card especially on the interior here really is what happens with Chris Murray I think we all just kind of assume that he's going to slide into that center role because uh, that's mostly what he played when he was at UCLA. And then, you know, the, the current the current guy there on the depth chart's a walk-on. Um, OU has had success with that in the past with Eric Wren. Um, I'm, I just, I, I'm not sure about Ian McIver. When I've seen him, he hasn't, he, I mean, he's definitely not terrible. Um, but of course, you know, when you're, when you're recruiting at the level that OU is, you, you want those big-time recruits to take over those, 
you know, take over those spots. So it's going to be really interesting to see. Uh, and, and I think uh, Andrew Rame is the guy that you really need to kind of look for this spring. Uh, if, 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 he, if he becomes an alpha on that offensive line, that is just, that's just great news for this offense and for the program going forward. Yeah, and don't forget about Robert Congle or Conjol. I can't, I can't remember if it's a soft G or not, the, the transfer from Arizona, because he played a little bit of center as well. He has played some center. I'm not sure if that's what they're looking at him as, but you mentioned Biedenbo. He, he moves guys around. So if like, all of these guys could get a chance to play, like, I mean, they're all going to move and mix and match because that's just what Bill Biedenbo does. So I, I don't know where he fits in, but we talked about him a couple of shows ago, uh, you know, a walk-on that ended up getting into the starting lineup at Arizona under Kevin Sumlin, so he's a hard worker. Uh, probably a pretty good team guy, as I, I think you pointed out, considering uh, you know his background. And again, he has some experience playing center and also guard spots. So he he's also an option there. And I don't again, I don't know if that's a spot they want him to play, if, or if they want him to play guard, or if he's just a depth piece. But we'll find out. But of course, yeah. I mean, I'm glad you bring that up because that's just another guy in the interior that's going to push those guys. So you know, competition breeds excellence. I mean, that's just that's I, I know it's it's sort of a simple cliche, but it's true. Uh, you want me to move on to number four? Yeah, move on to number four. Number four is Tennessee transfer Eric Gray at running back. Um, and so I, here's, here's the thing. You know, I think hmm. uh, I, I really like Eric Gray. Um, I've, I've watched quite a bit of his stuff from Tennessee in the last month or so. Um, and, and I think he's kind of sneaky, under the radar, really good. Um, mostly just I, I think he, he really does have... Uh, the possibility is there that he's a really good kind of yin and yang with with Kennedy Brooks. Um, I, I just think this offense really could use that explosive element to sort of contrast with Kennedy Brooks's. Uh, you know, I, I would say his dependability. Um, you know, he's not. I, I don't think we can really expect Kennedy Brooks to, um, you know, to be breaking off seventy yard runs every now and then, but. You know, Gray is a guy who is who's who can really make he people. He used to do miss. that all the time. That's true. That's Katie true. Brooks but used to break off 70, 80 yard runs all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah, I you know in eight in two thousand eighteen mostly. Uh, but you know that that offense was was crazy. There's there's a lot of different stuff going on there. Uh, but you know, I yeah. I think one of the things that really stands out about Eric Gray's uh, tape is just is how is how good he is at making people miss. Um, he's just he. He, he cuts really, really effectively. And I know that's kind of silly to say, um, but I, I just, the guy that, uh, you know, I, I just don't think, especially compared to last season, the running backs on the roster, last year until Ramondre came back, I don't think there was anyone on the roster that's better than Eric Gray. Um, and so I think, this was a, I think this was a really good pickup for OU. Um, and I, I think one of the biggest, you know, one of the most underrated aspects of his game is his ability to catch the ball out of the backfield. Uh, he did it a lot this past season at Tennessee, and Lee. I mean, what's I, I feel like um, when Lincoln Riley's offenses are most effective, it's when the running back can catch the ball out of the backfield. See Joe Mixon and Rodney Anderson. Uh, that just adds a completely different dimension, and um, I, I think Gray may be able to to, to provide that. And so uh, I, I'm hoping that he has a he has a huge spring where he gets comfortable with the offense. He understands. Uh, how to set up his blocks and whatnot, and I and I I really hope that he that they really integrate him into the passing game because I think that can only pay dividends going forward. Yeah, I'm with you on Eric Gray. I, there, there's a there's a scenario where he's the best running back on the roster. I, I mean, 
my thoughts on Kennedy Brooks have changed uh, quite a bit since the beginning. I mean, I've all, I mean, I like Kennedy Brooks a lot. He's, I think he's a really good player. Uh, I, th- I think over time I've realized I think I may have overrated him a little bit. Uh, and it's going to be weird because we haven't seen him play in so long. So I, it's one of those things where it's it's been again it's been so long since we've seen him play. So it's kind of easy to forget again maybe how good he was or is. Uh, but the fact that Eric Gray is now on this team and there's people out there you know, like like me that think hey he, he could be better than Kennedy Brooks. Uh, granted, Brooks has the advantage of being in the system. He he knows the offense that helps him, and he's gonna be really really fresh. He hadn't played in he hadn't played in a year, so that's gonna help Kennedy Brooks out a lot. And also, no, you throw on the fact that. You got this new guy in there with Kennedy Brooks, and he's going to have a chip on his shoulder, and Kennedy Brooks is going to want to prove people that, no, like, remember how good I am? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good too. So it's, it's a win-win all across the board because then that'll push Eric Gray. And the, the point I was trying to get to, though, that I, I kind of got sidetracked on, though, and I'm curious to see if you have Wanye Morris in this list as well. Uh, you may or may not, but it, the, the, the key, or not the, necessarily the key, but like, I, I guess the, for me what's interesting about a guy like Eric Gray and Wanye Morris offensive players coming in it's kind of like a Jalen Hurts situation but not the same because obviously Hurts was a quarterback but you got to get as much time in as possible with this Lincoln Riley offense to figure it out in the the quickest amount as possible because uh, they're only going to have one year here and uh, you know Jalen Hurts came in in January whatever like that and he had to hit the ground running and a lot more difficult for him because he's the quarterback so running back offensive line is not going to be as difficult in theory but in order for them to be as good as they, we need them to be, or Oklahoma is going to need them to be when September rolls around, they're going to have to to really dial in and be all in here this spring. So I think it's good that you have Gray on this list because if he struggles to kind of figure the offense out and he doesn't look that great, sure, it's it's early. It's not going to be a, a make or break thing, but it's it's not going to be a, a, a good sign for the for the fall, I don't think. But, I mean, that's obvious. I mean, if they have a bad spring, that that's never a good thing. <laughs> And and so I, you know, don't take this as me discounting Seth McGowan also. Um, you know, I, I Seth McGowan definitely showed flashes last season, especially catching the ball as well. Um, because they, you know, they, they used him catching the ball a little bit. He just had that sort of thing where, you know, he just didn't seem like he was physically ready to play. Um, you know, early on in the season he made some mental mistakes that that led to some really tough positions that, you know, that he put him in. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's certainly possible that over the next six months, Seth McGowan, he actually has a full spring. He has a full summer to be in the weight room and all of that. And Seth McGowan is, is able to kind of lift off and be a, be a force on this offense. I'm not discounting that at all. Um, I just think, you know, right now, Eric Gray is a much more proven commodity in college football. Um, you know, I, it's Eric Gray is, he's, you know, he's, he's had, he has over 2000 total yards in the sec. That's he's, he's not TJ pleasure. He's, he's not. No. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up McGowan because uh, I, I forgot to bring him up. Uh, and to me, McGowan, Marcus Major, in my mind, they're, they're, you got to prove it to me. So prove it to me. I, I didn't see enough from you last year. I mean, the Cotton Bowl, both. I mean, everyone looked in the Cotton Bowl. So, I mean, okay, so what? Uh, hope, hopefully that's what they are. That'd be great. Then Oklahoma's going to win a national championship then because everybody was great in the Cotton Bowl for the most part. Uh, but, yeah, there's just too many mental mistakes early on uh, vision was was not good at all for Seth McGowan a lot uh, it was better in the Cotton Bowl but uh, you know when TJ Pledger kind of started you know getting more of the line share of the carries and then obviously when Ramondre came back it was just it was over it was over for him 
for him and Marcus Major. So, uh, again, yeah, I mean, yeah, they'll have a chance. I mean, Lincoln Riley gives all of his running backs a chance. He always does. Always. But from my perspective, you got to prove it to me. I, I didn't see anywhere near enough in 2020 to, to get me to, to seriously consider either McGowan or Major to be up there along with Eric Gray or Kennedy Brooks. So that's that's where I, mean, I am with those yeah. two players. I mean, those two are going to be better. Like, of course they are. You know, a year a year stronger, a year smarter. They're going to be better. Um, uh, and and we'll see. Uh, it's obviously you know you, you want that room to continuously push each other. Um, I just I, I think back to to twenty seventeen and just I mean the the running back position going into that season was was not settled at all. Uh, you know, Abdul Adams was was the lead back to begin that season. You know, and we and and by the end of the year, Rodney Anderson was was definitely one of the best running backs in college football. Um, we had Marcellus Sutton getting carries at times. Marcellus that Sutton, he, um, Trey Sermon, of course, was was ended up being you know the number two back on that team, and it was you know things can change really quickly, especially at the running back position. So uh, definitely have my eye towards that. Lee, number three on the list is Anton Harrison. Um, and you can kind of fold Wanye Morris into this as well. Um, I, d- I didn't go with Wanye just because I thought that was kind of boring and, and a little obvious. Um, obviously, sort of the the assumption right now in the fan base is that Wan- they're just going to kind of you know plug Wanye in the left tackle, and it, it does it does seem like that's probably what's going to happen. Um, Anton Harrison, his more his more natural position is right tackle. And uh, this is kind of more of a uh, just sort of a personal thing to me, and I'm I'm really rooting for Anton Harrison because I he when I watched him play this year, he excited me. And this is a guy who didn't go through spring practice, barely had a summer to work on all of this stuff, and he was he was absolutely competent, you know, when he was in at left tackle this season. Um, and uh, so I, I I hope by by you know, shifting him over to the right side, his more natural position. Maybe it'll kind of free him up to use his athleticism more. Um, and I, I, I just, I really like the idea of OU having two extremely athletic tackles uh, on the edge there. Um, you know, we, we know Wanye Morris is athletic. That's that's the one thing that if you watch his film, that, that jumps out, that he moves really well. Um, and, on, and I thought Anton Harrison uh, showed flashes of that in 2020. Uh, he had some. He had some just really monster, great reps in the Big Twelve Championship against Will McDonald, uh, and also against uh, Mike Rose, where he kind of he kind of earholed Mike Rose, uh, of not a few times, but on on one occasion at least. And so, um, yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to his development. And again, going back to Bill Bedenboe tinkering so much in the spring, Harrison is going to play multiple positions this spring. That's that's you know that's that's certain. Um, I just hope, you know, he, he has enough time to, to acclimate himself on the right side. If that is, you know, sometimes I do sort of question the, you know, the conventional wisdom. If, you know, what if, what if Anton Harrison Lee is just, is so good. Like he, he, you know, he, he realizes that potential, you know, we saw him at the top of the depth chart, the first one that they released in the fall. What if he realizes that potential and then already on a second year on campus, he is like, he's that dude. He is obviously a first round pick. Um, something like that, you know, that's, that wouldn't be unprecedented in the history of college football at all. Um, and what, you know, what, what happens with Wanye Morris, if that's the case, you know, I think it's, no, uh, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Anton Harrison, my thoughts on him are, I don't recall him ever standing out in a bad way last season. Again, you know, it's not like we're watching every single 
tackle every single snap. But I, I, I guess I do have vague memories of him. Yeah, like you said, looking competent and, and fine. And uh, according to PFF, and I'm getting this from Oklahoma's official website, according to PFF, he only allowed one sack all season long uh, on 173 pass-blocking plays. So he, according to PFF, he had a really good freshman season. Uh, he's got that athleticism. And, and certainly for a guy who was a true freshman that didn't have, a spring, didn't have any spring practice, he played a lot of snaps for Oklahoma. So he, you know, him and Rame, again, not to repeat myself, they were the two guys that you always heard about in the, the offseason leading into it. And it ended up being Harrison who got a lot more snaps than, than Rame. So I think he's you know, obviously a guy that you, you hope with a spring practice and with more of a traditional offseason will develop and, yeah, potentially turn into, I mean, a, a future first-round type draft pick. I mean, because Oklahoma needs to be churning out those types of players on the offensive line. I mean, Creed Humphrey now, I mean, may not even be a first-round pick depending on how things oh, go. Which, definitely not. Definitely not. Which – Going into, you know, 2020, I mean, he – and, heck, even going in before he decided to come back to play 2020, he was, he was projected as a first-round pick. So it's, it's almost like his, his draft stock has, has gone down a little bit. We'll see what happens at Pro Day coming up. By the way, we're not really going to talk about Pro Day today because, I mean, whatever. Like, what are we going to do, preview Pro Day? Uh, I don't know. Like, uh, I mean, it's kind of intriguing because guys like Trey Brown and Trey Norwood and, like, I'm kind of curious, like, what Ramondre – his stats are because he's kind of been slept on in, in the running back group. Anyways, that's a sidebar. Uh, what was I getting at? Uh, Anton Harrison, Andrew Rame. Uh, yeah, just oh, uh, being like a, like a draft prospect, like a first round pick and uh, type player. Uh, I don't know if that's what he is. I don't think anybody knows that yet. But uh, yeah, if, if he's able to take a, a jump in the spring and he's somebody that Bill Biedenboe and all the team, his teammates are, are saying great things about and then we, you see him in the spring game and he looks good, then yeah, we're all going to be pretty excited about uh, him potentially being bookended with Wanya Morris on the offensive line and having those two players there at tackle. Uh, by the way, is Eric Swinson going to be back again? Is he going to be on the yes. roster, I think? And yes. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, I think he's coming back. So, hey, I mean, <laughs> Eric Swinson, he's going to get as many many games and years in as he possibly can. So, uh, God love him, man. I mean, he's been able to stay on the field, and he's been able to play good football, I guess. And so, yeah. and like, Pushing and people. And if you know if if Morris or Harrison do step up and take that left tackle spot, I'm I am perfectly comfortable with Eric Swinson as a backup left tackle. I, in fact, I'd say it's a pretty salty backup left tackle. Um, he's not great. I think everyone knows he's not great. But at this point in time in his career, he kind of is what he is. He's just he's he's average to and sometimes plays above average. And you know that's that's okay. Um, but. Like we said, in order for OU win a national championship, they I, I think they need to be very good to excellent at left tackle. Um, just just look at, at at the teams lately that have been win, winning national titles. Just draft picks all up and down the lines, offensive and defensive. They they need dudes there uh, because in the playoffs they're going to be blocking NFL players. So um, they 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 need people to they really need people to step up and develop. All right, who's number two? All right, I kind of cheated on number two a little bit, but uh, here it is, and I, and I think you're probably going to agree with this. It is the five-star wide receiver trio. Um, ah, okay. And so that is that is uh, Theo East, Jaden Hazelwood, and Trajan Bridges. Um, 
of course, we've seen we've seen plenty of Theo Weiss, um, and so I, I I do kind of have a hypothetical or not a hypothetical, but a question to ask about Theo Weiss kind of later in this monologue. Um, but we in the first two years on campus, we really haven't seen a lot of Jaden Hazelwood and Trajan Bridges, and a lot of that does have to do with outside circumstances. Um, their tenures at OU just up to this point have not been smooth at all, um, and unfortunately, it has generally has nothing to do with anything that's happened on the field. Um, of course, with Hazelwood tearing his ACL, uh, he tore it kind of right before the summer last year, I think, uh, is what it was. Um, and then yeah, that sounds right. And then, uh, and then Bridges, of course, uh, you know, with, with the suspension and all that. And so um, OU absolutely needs an alpha to step up in the receiver room. Now, I think, you know, after, uh, you know, with a year's development, I think that the alpha next year is likely to be Marvin Mims no matter how much people want it to be Jaden Hazelwood, probably, because I, I just think Mims is that good. Um, but I, I really do believe they need at least two of these three guys to step up and be NFL guys um, or or um, at the very least perform at like an all Big 12 level. And uh, they, they, they just need it. I, I look at the look at the receiving cores of the last two teams that have won the national championship. First round picks all the way up and down the lineup. Uh, I think LSU likely is going to have off that national championship team is likely to have three first round picks as receivers. Um, so, man, they that that's just what college football is these days. College football is about throwing bombs, and uh, and OU if you know, I think if OU is going to win a national championship, they need to this offense needs to be its best version of itself, which is just getting chunk plays over and over and over again through the air. Uh, uh, on on the ground because of you know on the ground because teams are are, are scared about the pass and whatnot, um, and it starts with these three guys. Uh, they are the most tenured guys in that wide receiver room right now, um, and they need to step up. And I know there's been there, there's already been talk of of Jaden Hazelwood kind of taking on a new attitude uh, so far in the off season, and and I hope I hope we finally get to see what Jaden Hazelwood is all about. And then of course you know we just. You know, I've heard, you know, of Trajan Bridges dominating on the scout team way too much lately, and it's it's time to see it on the field. Um, and of course, he hasn't really had an opportunity to be on the field. Um, but man, we saw him drop a, a perfectly thrown touchdown pass in the Big Twelve Championship. He's, you know, and uh, stuff like that. You know, if they're going to win a national championship, you got to make plays like that. You have to make plays like that, like ninety five percent of the time. You just, you have to. Um, and uh, that was a. That was a that was a tough catch, it, but no doubt it was a tough catch. Still stands. No doubt it was a tough catch, but they if they want to be on that level, those are the catches they need to make. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I I think there's there's a lot of pressure on those three guys. I, I think going into this off season, and that brings up Theo Weiss, and I and I just you know we we saw a lot of Theo this year. Obviously, he was the number two receiver on the team, um, and I I think everyone would would kind of agree that he had a pretty uneven season. You know, there were times where he, uh, his, his physical attributes looked really good. Um, and then there were times where he, where he dropped seven touchdown passes, right? Um, so, I, you know, Man, my question uh, is, here, here's the thing maybe I'm, I'm kind of scared of with Theo Weiss. Is, the, is, is Theo Weiss, is he what he is right now? Ha, have we, have we kind of seen what Theo Weiss is already? 
And I think if, like, let's say, let's say this year, this past season, th- that that is just who he is. He's just kind of a possession receiver. Uh, I mean, gets open a lot, but just kind of drops too many passes at times. Um, and if he is what he is, is that is that good enough for Oklahoma? I think it probably is. But that rests on guys like Hazelwood and Bridges and Mims taking up more of that alpha role. And, of course, Austin Stogner as well. Um, I don't know. What do you think? So, yeah, Weiss is the one where we have the most, we have the most um, tape on. We, we have, we've, we've seen him more than all the other guys. And I would tend to think that this is what he is. And here's the reason why I think that. I mean, you think back to the last two elite wide receivers Oklahoma has had drafted in the first round C.D. Lamb and Marquise Brown from this moment they both stepped on campus they were both really good and they kept getting better and better and better but like at at the start they were like yeah these guys are pretty darn good and they flashed and then the the type of player they were just kept getting I I guess they just they kept improving upon that and I I, I suppose obviously Theo Weiss can improve upon what he is now but he hasn't been anywhere near the level of like a, a, a C.D. Lamb or a Marquise Brown, like when he's been on the field. So even if he does get a little bit better, I, I just don't know how much more he can get. Like, is, is he one of those players that does need players like Bridges and Hazelwood around him then to shine more? But I don't know if that's a good question because he has guys, or he had guys like Stogner and Marvin Mims that could take pressure off of him. This past year, and aside from the Texas game, it was a whole lot of, okay, average play. And then, like you mentioned, I think he might have dropped more touchdowns than he actually caught the, uh, the past season, which he knows about. There's a 100% chance he knows that's a thing, and he's super mad about it and frustrated and probably hates when people bring it up and talk about it like we are right now. No doubt about it. Doesn't change the fact that it happened. And I, I, he's, he's got the perfect body and the perfect like, set for like the kind of receiver that I love. I love big-time, tall receivers. Same with Hazelwood. Uh, The way they're built. Unfortunately, with him, he's been hurt. So I I want more out of Weiss. I kind of figured he'd be a little faster. He's not as as much of a burner as I would have liked him to be, but that's okay. You don't have to be a burner. uh, The way he moves is is very Charleston Rambo-like. I wouldn't say it's exactly the same, but it's mm. it's it's pretty similar. I think think once they get going in a straight line, they're pretty fast. You saw... Um, I, I think you saw in the in yeah. the in the Cotton Bowl on the you know the the screen pass that he took to the house, uh, he he broke away pretty quickly from those people the, with the long strides uh, the long strides. I think so I, don't, uh, I, I think Florida's defense uh, went ahead and went back to the huddle before he was even at the forty yard line though. I think they, <laughs> I don't think they even point. tried to catch him or tackle him there. In that um, play. But but right, I mean we've <laughs> we've definitely seen flashes of Theo. That Texas game is a really good example where he like. Those the hands that he displayed in that game were elite. Were just like, okay, this guy yeah, is, yeah. is becoming what he is, and so I, this is still kind of gnawing at me a little bit. And I think to myself, man, what if he just would have caught all seven of those touchdown passes that he dropped? And are we, you know, and he had a, you know, he had eleven touchdowns and like seven hundred yards last year with like none of those drops. And are we thinking, man, Theo had a really good season, and he's just, you know. Wait, let's wait until he gets like a ton of other dudes kind of around him that the defense has to account for. And so I just, yeah, there's, there are just little things that stick out in my mind that are just really impressive about him, but he hasn't been able to put it all together yet. And so I, I'm thinking the two plays that stand out in my mind are 
uh, the two-point conversion that he caught against Texas in, in the Cotton Bowl, where, I mean, it was just, it, it was a laser beam that he caught perfectly with his hands with a defender draped all over him. It was beautiful. It was an NFL play. And uh, the other, the other uh, play that really sticks out to me was actually from the very first game of the season against Missouri State on, on that unreal throw that Rattler had uh, down the sideline. And Theo had to, he had to, he had to switch his body, he had to change his body really quickly to, uh, uh, to catch the back shoulder throw. And he did that with ease and he was smooth doing it. And so it makes me wonder if he's a guy who it's just, you know, if, if the ball is in the air too long and he has to think for a split second, he's going to, he's just going to drop it. But if he's got to do stuff just like, just, you know, like that and does it really quickly, maybe that's where the talent kind of comes out and the body control. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I think I think ideal what you want Theo Weiss to be in this offense is you want him to be kind of a possession guy along with Stogner, um, and you want dudes like uh, Bridges and Hazelwood and Mims to to be the guys that you throw bombs to, um, and uh, we'll see if it if it works out that way. I think you know a lot of people thought one thing when these three guys signed, and it it just it hasn't played out that way yet, and I think that's a little disappointing. But also, there's been some some weird circumstances as well. So, uh, this is it, man. This is their year. It's it's put up or shut up time, is it not? It is. I'll add another Theo Weiss positive play from that Texas game. There was a third down conversion he had where he he had real strong hands. And I remember uh, he had to kind of reach back, I think, and, and go up and catch it. And took I think not one but maybe two hits coming down on third down on like third and seven or something. And it was kind of it was during that stretch where they were just feeding him the football. They were just they were going to him over and over and over again. And he was in a zone, so that that's another play that stands out to me about Theo Weiss. That's a good point, though. I mean, yeah, like what if those drops had been catches? You know, what if he would have caught half of them? Yeah, like sure. Because yeah, I mean, that's like we saw him. And, yeah, we we saw him catch plenty of passes similar to those. You know, that hit him in the hands the entire season. So, is it like I said? Yeah, is 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 that? Is that the difference between us saying, man, Theo had a really good season and us kind of being wishy-washy on him? So we'll see. And I, I do want to go back to what you said about CD and Hollywood. Uh, Hollywood didn't really come onto the scene until halfway through that season. And um, they had they had arguably the best college football quarterback of all time throwing to them as well. Well, yeah, no, like... I don't know if I said if I was specific with it, like when they got on the field, like Hollywood couldn't get on the field for whatever reason until, I mean, later in the year, they just, he wasn't part of the offense, but like once he was on the field, he was a big part of the offense. So I don't, once, I don't know yeah, what had changed. You're right, yeah. yeah. As, as soon as Hollywood stepped on the field, he was playing at an all American level. And that is, I, I don't, I don't think that you can even say the same thing about CD in that first season. Um, Holly, yeah, that's. I was actually, I because I felt like torturing myself uh, this past weekend. I uh, I went back and I I rewatched the first half of the Rose Bowl. Don't go and do that. Don't go and do it, everyone. Just don't do it. You'll be sad afterwards. Well, you just you rewatch it and then you pretend like that was the end of the game. Oh, that was it. <laughs> what a great win that was for the first thirty minutes. God, um, they just. Man, they left they left a lot on the field in that first half too. Baker missed some throws that ah, man, like it. You, you could argue that I mean it, it should have been it should have been thirty five to seventeen at halftime. It, it, I mean it could have been there were some there were some wide open throws that Baker missed in the first half. 
Yeah. Out of those three players, though, I think Trajan Bridges is the one that I am most interested in seeing what he becomes because he hasn't been hurt. The only reason he hasn't been playing is because of off-the-field stuff. Whereas with Jaden, uh, you, you don't know what's going to happen with him coming back from his, his ACL injury. And I know he came back and he played sparingly at the end of the season and he didn't look anywhere near the same as he looked in 2019. Uh, you know, a year removed from it and more healthy, I would expect and hope for him to be more like the 2019 self because he's young, he's in college, he's an incredible athlete. He should be able to come back from an ACL like that that many months removed from an ACL and be pretty much back to 100%. That's just the way modern medicine works. And when you're young and that, ha- I mean, from my own personal experiences, I had a PCL thing when I was just out of college. I'm not a wasn't a D1 athlete, and you know, ten years later, I I mean, my knee, everything, I'm fine. Like I'm 100 percent, like no big deal. And I, I pretty much was like you know a year, two years later. So it's to be similar to to Jaden. So I I hope Jaden's injury stuff won't be an issue. But Trajan, it's I want to know and see what he is in this offense because he never got to, to really do a whole lot in 2019 because of C.D. Lamb being there and he was, he was a freshman and it was more of a Jaden Hazelwood type show. And obviously last year he didn't get a chance to do anything. So I, I just I don't know what he is at all and I don't think anybody knows what he is. And, and so the question is, like Lincoln Riley, show us what he is whenever he starts to play a lot more snaps. And that's, what, that's what's intri- intriguing to me and I'm curious to see what he looks like in the spring game. Yeah, I, uh, if, if we're talking about pure emotion – I kind of and and just sort of you know how how I'm feeling kind of a feeling that Trajan is going to be a dog like in in a, in a good sense um and uh I've always just kind of had a good feeling about him um he's got an awesome name too how cool would it be if they had a if OU uh if OU just has like an all-American named Trajan Bridges that's so cool that's a cool name it needs to happen we need to speak it into existence <laughs> yeah uh, yeah, yeah. So that, that was a good one, though. All three of those guys; those are yeah some of the more the more polarizing offensive players, no doubt, in the last two three years. All I'm right. gonna I'm a pretty good idea. Number one's gonna be. Yeah, you ready for it? Yeah, maybe. Is it is it kind of obvious in retrospect? Um, so yeah, I mean, number one on the wrist uh, on the wrist on the list is Spencer Rattler. Um, and uh, I, you know, hey, Sp- Spencer Rattler is the best player on the team. He he is. He was last year. Um, he will be this upcoming season. Um, they need him to play better, though, if they want to if they want to win a national championship. And we can talk about Andrew Rame, Eric Gray, those receivers, Wanye Morris, Anton Harris, and all those guys. But if Spencer Rattler does not take a step forward this season, it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. Um, and and this and he was good last year. He was really good last year. He was undoubtedly one of the five best quarterbacks in college football last season. Um, but they, they do need him to play at, at, a, at a more elite level than, than he was. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do is consistency. There were, just, there were far too many drives in 2020 that ended in field goals. Way too many. That needs to be cleaned up, and that starts with Spencer Rattler. And so, uh, yeah, we, we, we like to say it's the cliché, uh, you know that they're gonna they're gonna win the national championship right now is, is when they're gonna do it, and it starts with with number seven right there. It really starts with him. Uh, he he needs to he needs to emerge as a leader, and he needs to he needs to emerge as a guy who has a killer instinct uh, that that spreads to the rest of the team. Um, because 
you know, he's, he's, he's the quarterback, man. He's, he's the most important guy. And, um, I know that's, that's, that's not a hot take, but, um, man, can you imagine if like, he, cause he's just a dude, I mean, you see the physical ability just dripping off of him. Uh, he flicks his wrist and it's just, it's a rock. He's got a, I, I, he's got a stronger arm than both Baker and Kyler. And, uh, it is, would you agree or no? Mm, I think, I think he does. Nah, I, I haven't seen that yet. I, I mean, and that's not saying anything are, are bad talking, about those. Are we talking those currently, guys. or like when they were they were they're talking like when they were in college, when they're in there in college? I mean, I mean Baker. I think I think Baker's got a better arm than all three of, or three of them or both. I think he's got the best one of the the three. Like, yeah, Baker's no, okay, got, it, no, yeah. Let me no, but yeah, I think of those three guys, Baker is is absolutely the the most natural passer and is is the best at, at like playing the position. And I think that's, that's, I mean, you're, you're splitting hairs when you're, when you're talking about Baker and Kyler, um, like you're splitting just the smallest of hairs. Um, but no, I mean, we're, we're talking about physical attributes right now. And I, I don't, in terms of like arm talent, I, I feel like Spencer Rattler gets more out of his arm with, with like, with less, um, body movement than like because because Baker a lot okay. of his arm was a lot of his arm yeah. was torque yeah. uh, and you know and Spencer just he he flicks his wrist and it's a it's a rocket and so um that that's okay, that's yeah, kind I of what I'm in terms of just I was thinking in terms of strength but yeah arm talent yeah I can yeah I'm with you but yeah he needs to he needs to get better pre snap and he need and he needs to get better with this weird thing. Uh, of him just not really being able to throw over the middle in the intermediate, and um, I, you know, I, I've gone back and rewatched some games, and, and Lee, that was that was a problem all season long. Uh, him him seeing the middle of the field and being accurate over the middle of the field. So um, he obviously a lot better on deep passes over the middle of the field. Uh, but man, when it's like those little pop passes to Jeremiah Hall or. Or if he's just you know trying to throw over the middle to like Stogners, like he he struggled at times with his accuracy, and so I wonder if it has to do with his height. Uh, he's not you know maybe not maneuvering the best, um, but man he's he's a guy who has just all the physical ability uh, ability in the world. He now just needs to he now he he needs to meld that with with the mental part of it. Um, and if he does that, if he's able to take a step, uh, you know, in the I, I almost said in the classroom in the film room. Um, and, and noticing different things from defenses, being able to notice things pre-snap, because I, you know, I, 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 I still think that's over 2020. That that was definitely a blind spot in his game. I, I don't, I don't think he was anywhere near as good pre-snap as Baker and Kyler were, and um, and Hertz didn't do anything pre-snap. So you know, that's I don't really uh, factor him in there. But um, it, it all starts with number seven. He's the you know. The, they can win a national championship on him just being otherworldly. That can happen. Um, obviously, you would you know you would want everyone else to take a step and everyone else to be otherworldly. But uh, he's the most talented guy on the team. He's the guy who you know who is who I, I think is a potential number one pick in the NFL. We'll see if he can put it all together. If he does, if so he does, he will be a legend. He will be a legend. Uh, he will be. Uh, he, he will stand beside all of the legends all throughout OU football history. Um, and w- we'll see if he, if he's able to do it. So a couple of things you mentioned, he needs to be a leader. And I, I think that's, you know, check that off. I mean, the, the, the guys love him. I mean, they, whether it's, 
I mean, you can always get better at it, obviously, over time. Uh, that, that you're always going to develop relationships and continue to foster relationships. But all the guys know he's awesome, and they, they all follow him. So there's that. I, maybe I mean, he's still very young, and there's a lot to learn and how to be a better leader, which I hopefully he's somehow going to figure that out. And having a spring season this time is a, you know, like last year didn't happen. That's going to do nothing but help. So I think that's already kind of there, but I can always get better. But I think the most important thing you brought up there is that he's got to have a killer instinct. And he probably thinks he does right now. Every, every athlete probably thinks they have that. But it's something where, like, think back to the Texas Tech game, where after that game, it was great. Like, I loved the comments from him being honest, saying, like, hey, yeah, like, going into that game, we wanted to, to blow somebody out or whatever he said. It was something along those lines. Like, hey, like, we need to do that to this type of team. You need to Stuff embarrass like somebody. Like, what he said. Embarrass some. Yeah, yeah. So crap like that, but every single game drive to drive, which is almost impossible to keep up that standard. It is impossible. You can't do it for drive to drive. But that kind of stuff is what separates those national title teams, especially a team like Oklahoma that doesn't have the type of stacked lineup, stacked recruits like Alabama does, where maybe they can get away with taking a couple of plays off here or there. Maybe they don't. Maybe like a guy like Mac Jones isn't, isn't just a silent killer because he didn't have to be. Because it's just they'll they'll run the offense and then everything works out and everybody's open. It's no big deal. And then the defense all you know always plays really well too. Whereas like on Oklahoma, you kind of have to have that. You have to have that quarterback that really, really can win a game for you and put everything on his back. And I mean Baker could do that, Kyler could do that, but they couldn't do it to the point where they can win it all. And of course, it factors in that they didn't have a defense that could stop a nosebleed. That made it a lot more difficult for those guys. Whereas now Spencer, if he can get to that level after just one year or get close to that level with a defense that's actually good, fine, we would expect it to be at least good this year, not not 2017, 2018 Oklahoma defense, then Oklahoma's got a shot. So it's develop it's you know, it's developing that kind of killer instinct, let's say to examples of hey it's we're up by two touchdowns it's the third quarter we got the ball coming out of the halftime we got to score this first drive like there's no excuse not to take the ball down and score to go up three touchdowns and then hey if the defense gets off the field three and out or maybe four plays and out and we get the football back yeah yeah we're up by three touchdowns right now so we can kind of take the foot off the gas but no that that's a waste of time we are going to take the football and go score again and put even more pressure on the opposing team, no matter who we're playing. That kind of mentality, which has been lacking, it seems like, a lot in the Lincoln-Riley era, to some extent, in some big games. And we all complain about that a lot. I mean, about how the kind of the foot comes off the gas and maybe teams get back into the game. Uh, whenever the offense needs to be really, really good or needs to kind of finish or put teams away, mysteriously, it, it starts to kind of stutter and stall. And that can't happen anymore. And, and that's what it needs to get to. Like, it's, it's a lot easier said than done. It's just, I don't know the solution. I don't know the equation to get there, to actually make it to where those drives happen, to where they put teams away and where he gets that killer instinct. I don't know. Uh, and that's what Lincoln Riley gets paid to know. And that's what uh, all these guys are on scholarship. And that's why Spencer Rattler is trying to become the first pick in the draft. That, that's like his incentive to learn that, how to do that stuff. And we'll see. And, and it's a lot of theoretical crap that I'm throwing out there, but stuff that you can't really measure aside from kind of using your eyeballs and watching the games once they happen. But that, that's kind of what needs to have happen. 
Because if not, the only other solution is literally you are perfect in the film room and you pretty much know exactly what the other team's going to do and you can game plan against it and then it's not really going to matter if you have a killer instinct or not because your game plan is so good from start to finish that you just bury teams and eh, like but that the chances of that happening in college football are, are always very very low and so i this offseason is kind of unique in the sense that this is this is the first you know offseason or preseason since i i think about 2011 that the expectation for OU is to win the national title, um, like the realistic expectation. Um, 2011, they they were the preseason number one team in the country, um, and this is this is the first time in about ten years that that is the expectation, and um, it's it, it's it's going to be really interesting to see if these group of if this this group of guys uh, is able to kind of meet the challenge, and because um, I I know there's pressure within that program to win national titles. There is. That's the standard. And I think these guys, they know that this is kind of the year where a lot of the stars are aligning. Um, and it, they, let's they don't so, kind of know they they don't kind of know they do know. I mean, just again, we talked about it at the time. Listen to what they said after the Cotton Bowl. Everybody that talked after the Cotton Bowl, the the implication was all like, yeah, we know that this next year is kind of the year. I mean, Lincoln Riley kind of had that that kind of inferred it. Spencer Rattler certainly did. Um, Isaiah Thomas did uh, so yeah I mean they, they don't kind of know like that is the standard inside that locker room inside that program right now is this is a national title season let's go get it that's I mean that's my interpretation of what I have seen what I have heard uh, I've obviously I'm not in the locker room along with them but that's what it, it seems like to me sorry I cut you off but I just wanted to get that no it's okay in. um yeah you're right yeah yeah I mean I I, I get that feeling as well and so it's 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 going to be about how much they want it, and uh, you know I I think I I, th- I think this group is going to work hard to get there. Um, this was this was a group of guys, you know, who who did really respond extremely well to adversity in in, in the 2020 season. Uh, they did, and so uh, that's I love to see that. And then you know I there were there's other times throughout OU history, especially you know in the past 20 years where you you see the, those building blocks kind of culminate into a special season and so like I always think back to uh to 2005 you know where they they took their they took their licks that season after four consecutive great years um and they took their licks in the beginning of the season and by the end of the season they were arguably you know a a top 15 type team in the country and they were young and they they had learned and they had grown and in 2006 you, you sort of saw a continuation of that they still lost two games but they were still young, and they they had a bunch of guys coming back, especially on offense and in defense. And then I think, and then you saw in two thousand seven and two thousand eight a team that when they played well, they just they killed everybody, killed everybody when they played well. And um, and so oh, as an aside, uh, as as a palate cleanser, Lee, after the after I rewatched the first half of the Rose Bowl, I watched a uh, a quote unquote no huddle version of the two thousand eight Texas Tech game, uh, just just as a palate cleanser. <laughs> And I uh, actually, I, I come away, I'm back to thinking 2008 is the best offense they've had. I, I'm back to that thinking. Um, it was just, and it's because of DeMarco Murray. DeMarco Murray is is our, is so good, was so good that season. Um, all you have to do is watch that 2008 Texas Tech game, and and you will understand right away why him not being in the national championship, national championship game that year was, was a death blow for OU. Just, just watch Demarco Murray in two thousand and eight. He is unreal. 
and it was that. So it's sad. It's sad again. Oh. I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Sorry to bring uh, up all, all the right. sadness. Yeah, that's what you do. Uh, well, that's all I have on Spencer Rattler. You got anything else you want to add? Anything else in your notes that you hadn't added? I think that was a good list, Grant. Good job. It's a pretty good list. Well I don't done. know yet. Can you think of it, like any other guys off the top of your head that you think is really big to have a, a you know big spring on offense? Before we move on, um, I guess sticking with the theme of new players that, in theory, could contribute even as a starter, but definitely as depth. Uh, that are new to the program, and I brought him up earlier. I, I think it's Conjul, Robert Conjul. I just I don't know what what's going to happen with him, so I think it's important for him to hit the ground running. And I don't I don't see why he wouldn't, because he's a player that I'm sure, like I've heard, I believe. Um, I think I think it's this would be cool to say. I, I I'm pretty sure Dusty told me that he's kind of a, one of those guys that, like Beatenbow is actually pretty excited to get, like under this under the radar walk on, you know. So I, you know, what does that mean? I, I mean, it, it, I'm sure it, it's not bad. It's if anything, it's good. It could be nothing though. So I guess that's another kind of random new guy that we briefly touched on earlier that I'm curious to see like when he gets brought up, what is the talk about him? Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe Bo saw something in his tape like, Oh yeah, this guy is really suited for our system because you no, know, OU's offensive line, their system in the running game and all of that. It's, it's not always based just on brute force, uh, they, they kind of went to that in 2019 in, in the second half of the season where they just kind of pounded the rock. Uh, but when they really had the running game going with Baker and Kyler, a lot of a lot of the offensive line has to do with leverage, angles, uh, being able to move well. And, you know, I, I haven't seen Robert Conjol, but maybe he kind of checks all of those boxes and, and, and Beaton Bow is is kind of salivating, maybe getting his hands on him. So, uh, yeah, I... I the the Robert Conjol pickup is is nothing but good. I mean that's a, that's a, a multi year starter who is coming in now and you're not expecting him to start for you. That's that's awesome. All right, so we'll do defense next time, and I'll uh, I'll try to put together a list of defense or or have more more kind of in depth thoughts on that. I think the defense is probably going to have a lot more variation in our in our picks. Um. Because, I mean, yeah, the defense, there's a lot of, like, really young guys who we're, we just don't know a ton about yet on the defense. So I'll be interested to see kind of how, uh, how we attack that in a couple weeks. All right, so before we move on to this ESPN quarterback list, we can, we can talk about it for a little bit. I do want to acknowledge uh, those that are interested still in the whole Buki rewatch that I'm on. If you're wondering, where's the update? Uh, okay, so I was hoping to be done with the 2019 season by this podcast, but I am not. Yeah, it's taken a lot longer than I thought. I'm kind of uh, moseying my way on through. Uh, I actually most recently watched the Iowa State game. So since our last podcast, I've only watched three games. I know that's that's not a very you know efficient use of my time, but that's where I am. Uh, I will say uh, I, I don't. I'll, I'll say the details for later, but. Uh, so I'm not done with 2019. I, I man, he <laughs> Buki has actually been. He's probably between him and Parnell Motley, the two best secondary players so far in 2019. Can you say that a little louder through, for everyone? Uh, through yeah, through the Iowa State game, it's between Parnell Motley and Buki as the two best players in the secondary. I so see. I'm glad I did this because there's no way I would have thought through 
I think that's nine games that there would be a lot more good on tape from him in 2019 uh, than bad. So I still have one, two, three, four, five more games to go that season. But he has been mostly good in 2019, but uh, still I'm not done with the full season yet. Uh, and he has been better than uh, guys like Pat Fields as far as like my ranking system of good plays, bad plays, you know, missed tackles, missed chances. Uh, the entire team in, the, in 2019, the missed chances thing does not come up much at all. It came up actually more than it ever has in the uh, Iowa State game, but maybe I can get to details of that later on. As far as missed tackles go for like Buki, doesn't happen all that much. I, he's, yeah, it, it's crazy. Like he, he's actually playing really well. So, uh, you know, I, again, with every single game, I'll, I'll have new, uh, new grades for him. But so far through, I think it's, Eight or nine games in 2019 through the Iowa State game, he has looked really, really good. So that's that's all the update I have for you right now. I'll, I'll get into more details later when I'm done with 2019. I apologize for those who are actually super interested in this. I'm taking so long to get through it. Uh, it it's it is tough to kind of go back and, and critically watch all these games, and also it's taking me longer to watch the games, Grant, because I have been making sure that I'm looking at the other players too in the secondary. So I'm trying to make it fair with Buki. Like, okay, if I'm just looking at one guy the entire time and I'm not looking at another guy as critically, what if this other guy was actually playing way worse, but I just wasn't tracking it. And you know, there's not much to compare there. So that's taking me a lot longer as well. So just wanted to give that update uh, before we get to this list of quarterbacks and I'll let you go over what you think is mostly interesting uh, for me, I know I, I can kind of go up and down this list and maybe point out one or two players where I think eh, that seems either too high or too low. But other than that, I mean, I start with this. What is the parameters or, or how how is Baker Mayfield, by the way? I mean, everyone probably knows by now. Baker Mayfield is number one. How do they judge this? It was was this Bill Connolly, by the way, that put this list out? Yeah, this is Bill Connolly. He's the purveyor of SP plus. Um, yeah, I, I think I think he. He was he was just trying his best. I think he was weighing a ton of different things. Um, so obviously, career had weight. I don't think he had like a point system or anything like that. Um, I think he was, you know, I think career was probably uh, because Baker was number one. I'm assuming it was his was his biggest priority on there. But it also looks like he is giving a lot of, you know, he's 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 also putting a ton of importance on maybe single singularly dominant seasons as well. Which I, you know, I, I think is fair. This is this is a tough list to come up with, um, because there's you know there's a lot of people who have had great seasons in college football, but have also had kind of okay to bad seasons as well in their career um, on this list. And so that's where I actually think the most interesting part about is uh, this is, and I where it gets interesting is when you judge the players on this list who basically just had one great year. Uh, I I think that's the most interesting thing. Um, and so I, I think I, th- I think we should just go over the top ten real quick, just to just so everyone kind of has an idea. Uh, number ten is Robert Griffin the third. Nine is uh, Marcus Mariota. Eight is Lamar Jackson. Seven is Kyler Murray. Six is Deshaun Watson. Five is Joe Burrow. Four is Tim Tebow. Three is Vince Young. Two is Cam Newton. One is is Baker Mayfield. And so I I, I did kind of go through and I. I I was like ready to kind of rip this list apart, but the more that I looked at it, it, it really is a pretty good list. Actually, uh, there were only there were only three quarterbacks kind of left off it that I would that I would say you know are are probably 
you could definitely find three guys that those you know on this list that those guys are better than. Um, and, and just, yeah, so those three guys in my head were, were Brandon Whedon, AJ McCarron and, and Teddy Bridgewater, uh, were not on this list. Um, but I don't know, Lee, I, I think by far the most interesting talking point, uh, that this, that this list generates is how do you weigh those dominant seasons? Because I think, I think pretty much everyone agrees that the most valuable season anyone has ever had in college football was Cam Newton in, in 2010. He, he, he essentially won the national championship by himself because um, that that was an Auburn team that won like two games the next season. Um, so I, I, I think everyone would agree that Cam Newton has had the has had the most valuable dominant season. And I wouldn't even say dominant because like when you actually he was I mean, he, he was by far the best player and he, he willed them to a national title. So it's like I'm I'm OK with with Cam Newton being number two on this list based on that. Um. I think by far the most interesting debate here is, is Vince Young. And um, one, of my th- you know, one of my greatest irritations a- as a college football fan is when Vince Young is brought up, everyone just kind of talks about him in the light that he was always great. He was, ju- he was just like this, this unbelievably dominant force in college football that, that no one could stop you know, if, you know, every year that he was a starter in college. And that's just not true. And, you know, to be completely honest with you, he was, you know, by the time his junior year started, the national championship season, up to that point, he was very clearly a disappointment. Um, and I know he won the Rose Bowl the year before that, but in terms of his, his um, the, you know, he was benched that season. And so, like, you know, I, he's a guy who really couldn't figure out um, throwing the football until his last season. Um, and so I just... Maybe this is just me just with my crimson colored glasses. And I, I just think Vince Young gets way too much credit on these lists uh, for a guy who just who who was kind of an average player his first two seasons. Uh, really, all he all he brought to the table were his legs. Um, and so, I mean, it, in 2004, you know, his second year as a start, he got shut out in the Cotton Bowl by OU. And I don't think anyone would say that was a special OU defense by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and, and I also think that, uh, you know, that 2005 was a really interesting year in the big 12, um, just for the fact that 2004 was a huge year for the big 12 and every team graduated everybody except for Texas who brought everyone back. Um, and this is Texas's schedule was really easy. That season was really easy. And, you know, they would have gone undefeated with their backup quarterback that year, uh, throughout the regular season. Um, they just, the Big 12 was bad. It wasn't good. And um, and that's not to take away, Vince Young was amazing that season. He was very, very good. Um, and, and of course, obviously, he has the national title, you know, uh, you know on his belt. But I don't know. What, what do you think about that? I, I just, I, I think Vince Young is, is pretty clearly the most overrated player in college football history. Uh, but also, I am a, I am a hardcore Oklahoma fan. And so that, that, very easily could just be my crimson colored glasses because the majority of games that I watched him play in his career, I was like, gosh, man, this guy just can't put it all together. Yeah. I, that was so long ago for me. And I, I, I guess it, this probably answers your question. Like I never, I never really thought much of Vince young and like, obviously that Rose bowl was huge and he won it all. But like, other than that game, I don't, I never was like, Oh no, Vince young. Like I'm scared of that guy. Like, and I'm just looking, I'm looking back at, at his his seasons and 
yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty pedestrian, and then he had the really good 2005 year. And so I think I think an interesting way to look at this or ask questions about this list is you just you talked about Cam Newton. He had the one great year. He basically won it all for for Auburn. Okay, you could make the argument that Vince Young basically won it all for Texas that one year. What if uh, Vince Young literally was like Cam Newton and just played the one season? Like he came in in one season in 2005, and that was it. Okay, like would you be more cool with like, oh yeah, like it's pretty similar to Cam Newton. He was he was really good. He had that one year. He won it all. Boom on that list. But what makes this interesting though is that he's got two additional seasons of. Okay, like fine play, which like then averages out his entire career to just like, okay, like not all that special. Therefore, why is he so high on the list? That's what stands out to me. Because you look guess, at uh yeah, like Tim Tebow's right behind him. Like Tim Tebow, all of his like all of his years in college were great. I mean, he was he was pretty much fantastic the entire time. And he has the the, the you know, I guess technically two national titles. Um so you know, it makes sense. I guess but, like, yeah, you know, why like, I is think, Vince Young yeah. I guess yeah. I think that's that's where the debate is. How do you weight you know career uh, with one dominant season essentially? And because you know, I think I think everyone, I think even Texas fans would agree this. Colt McCoy had a much better career than Vince Young did. Um, and so, and then yeah, actually, I was a lot more afraid of Colt McCoy than I was of Vince Young. Colt McCoy was really good. Man. Colt McCoy he, was, was guy, he could do it. And so actually, yeah. So yeah. Colt McCoy came in at number twelve on this list, and he's actually the first person on here I said is too low. Um, I, I, Colt McCoy was just a really, really great college quarterback. Um, I think, uh, a lot of, uh, he's basically Baker Mayfield without the ability to throw bombs essentially. Um, and I, and I just, it's hard for me to come away with just a lot of respect for Texas players just because, you know, that's, that's kind of the fun of the rivalry is that you hate all of them. Um, Colt McCoy is probably the, the opposing player I respect the most of any OU opponent I've, I've, I think ever. And so maybe again, that's just kind of an emotional thing to me, but if I was making a list of 60 best, Colt McCoy would be ahead of Vince Young. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's just kind of where it is. He was just more consistently excellent than Vince Young was. It would seem this list is it's giving extra points or it's giving some favoritism to players who won the Heisman trophy. And the reason I say that is the only reason I think you can argue that Lamar Jackson at eight should be ahead of Trevor Lawrence. Who's at 11 is because Lamar Jackson won a Heisman trophy. But I think Trevor Lawrence's college career has been much better than Lamar Jackson's. I mean, Trevor Lawrence is, I mean, he's got a national title and he's just, he's a much better all around quarterback, like just the kind of the way it is. So I, yeah, I, I, Actually, I think I think Trevor Lawrence is the is the first one I saw. That's like, why is he out of the top ten? <laughs> oh, really? Uh, I think Trevor Lawrence is the yeah. most misplaced person on this list. Um, I would have him much uh, up much closer to where Justin Fields is at like twenty seven. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, I you know, and and I'm not the first person to make this point, uh, but he didn't get better in college. Uh, his best season was his freshman season, and. Um, you know, I, I, I really don't think that the, uh, the, te- the, the production on the field matched the hype. And that's not to say, that's not to say he's not great. And I, I, if I was an NFL franchise, I'd take him number one overall. I just, you know, I, in terms of his career, he was very good. But I, I, I think Clemson was winning games a majority of the time, not really because of Trevor Lawrence. Does that make sense? 
yeah, I get Trevor it. Like, Lawrence, I, I just Trevor Lawrence raised their ceiling. Year. You know, raised their ceiling for sure. But you know, I and and that and that's kind of like it, it's tough to weigh because you know it's like I Clemson would have been in the college football playoff the last three years with or without Trevor Lawrence. I mean the I I mean the stats would I mean this the stats show that his freshman year is technically is actually his, his worst year. Uh, so I I mean it was it was probably his best touchdown to interception ratio, but that's that's it. I mean every every other number across the board is better. Uh last year and then I guess la- and also last year you have to take into account he did play what two fewer games or whatever uh than the previous years, but uh I I just disagree. I I I mean he I think he got better. He he ran the offense so well, and yeah, it helped that Clemson's defense is always really good. But uh, Trevor Lawrence is a scary player, and I, I, I think he. I'm curious. I'm not sure what he's going to be in the NFL uh, yet. Like I just, I would, I would assume he's going to be good. But I, yeah, I like Trevor Lawrence a lot. And like, and and so uh, this is where it gets interesting because, like, sure, I mean, Trevor Lawrence, he has that national title or whatever, but Trevor Lawrence is not was not is not was not better in college than Andrew Luck was. Andrew Luck is number 18 on this list. Andrew Luck was, was better in college than Trevor Lawrence was. Um, and so that's where, was you know. He? Yeah. I mean, at least in my I opinion, mean, he was. I watched, I watched a lot more uh, Lawrence in college than I did Andrew Luck back then. So I, I, mean, I guess did, I can't. Did, did yeah. more with less. You know, he wasn't, you know, Trevor Lawrence was in an offense that, you know, theoretically maximized his ability Andrew Luck had to play in a pro-style offense where he turned his back on the defense on basically every drop back. You know, I... Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I... That, that, Andrew, that's, yeah, that's, that's fair. I think, yeah, Andrew Luck's retirement uh, a year or so ago is basically going to cement him as probably the most underrated player of all time, just like across anything, because people are just going to kind of forget about him. Um, but he was awesome. He, he was a really, really good player. So... Um, I don't know, just kind of some other ones that I thought were, were too low. Uh, Johnny Manziel is number 13 on this list. Um, I, he, he should be in the top 10. Uh, he, I would put him over RG3, Mariota, and Lamar Jackson, um, just, just to name three. Um, you know, when, when you get into the Murray, Watson, Burrow, you know, those, that, then yeah, it's really hard to, to argue against, you know, a, a lot of the guys on here. But uh, Johnny Manziel, I, I just is still one of the best college players I've ever seen. And um, that that was fun while that lasted. Uh, also, another egregious one, uh, Sam Bradford is number 15 on this list. And that's just not correct. That's that's not right. Um, and Kellen Moore from Boise State is, is ahead of him. And, you know, I, I, I know when you, when, you look at, when you look at raw stats, Kellen Moore's numbers were great in college. He was very efficient. Um, I, I don't think anyone can you know, tell me that he was like effectively at their height of their powers better than Sam Bradford. That's, that's ridiculous. Um, and yeah, I, I, and again, this is my, this is my crimson colored glasses. Sam Bradford is absolutely one of the 10 best college quarterbacks of the last 20 years. Um, it's, it's, it's just, I, there's been a lot of excellence at quarterback, you know, since he's been there. Um, but man, just, just go back and watch some of his stuff from that year. It's just, it's just precision, laser, everything right on the money, um, getting in, getting into the right plays, the way that he he ran that hurry up offense. It is just, I mean, it's it's college football pornography. G- go and watch; it's beautiful. So, um, yeah, I think I think actually, in in you know, 
this spring and summer, I'm going to go back and try to rewatch a lot of those 2008 games. Um, man, they they beat you. That offense. I think beat you, you and in, uh, I think you and Brady need to do a podcast to do like to, to get all your old OU talk out. Because like I, I'll be honest with you guys, I I have very little interest in talking about a lot of these old like stuff in the past. Like it just doesn't like going back and watching old games does nothing for me. Uh, I it it bores me to death, man, because it already happened. But I know Brady loves the history of it, and I know you do too. So maybe you guys need to to get out so you can get all this stuff off your chest. Maybe maybe uh, I don't know. Um, trying to think of like a good pun of our our two shows put together. I don't know. Because yeah, I yes, I agree. Sam Bradford was really good. I don't need you to go through all the details of why though, because now we're just burning daylight at this point. <laughs> I I find like the the list. Like, yes, he's better than Kellen Moore. I agree. And so the whole, like, are they weighing Heisman's more? Because why is Sam Bradford that low if they're weighing Heisman's more? And also, why is Deshaun, I mean, this is splitting hairs, but Deshaun Watson should not be behind Vince Young. He should not be behind, in my opinion, Joe Burrow based on the parameters of this, of this list. Because if Baker Mayfield's number one, which is probably they're rewarding his entirety of his career plus his Heisman, you could make the argument that Deshaun Watson, his entirety of his career was really great. Didn't win a Heisman, but he won a national title. I think Deshaun Watson should be a couple spots higher. I don't know why he's uh, behind those guys. And there I think if I was making this, yeah, I was gonna say I think if I was making this list, Deshaun Deshaun Watson yeah. would be number three for me, probably behind Baker and okay. uh, behind Baker and, and Tebow. Actually, would be my number two. Yeah, I, I just, oh, sure. And it's just some inconsistencies on in how these guys are being graded because then you see at 23, you have Jalen Hurts, which, okay, his entire career, you can argue that's why he's on this list. But right behind him at 24 is Russell Wilson, who I know he was at NC State for a long time, but there's also people on this list that are being graded on their one great year. And Russell Wilson's one year at Wisconsin was incredible. I mean, it was an awesome, awesome year. He didn't win a Heisman. But go back and look at his numbers that season. I mean, he like was maybe the best quarterback in college football that year. But but, but that's they also not good enough to get him ahead of Jalen Hurts. But they also lost four games, and he they lost they got oh. blown out in the Rose Bowl by Oregon. Oh, all right. So well, I mean, I I think I think that probably waited point. a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that. By the way, yeah, man, that when was uh, so I I graduated from the University of Minnesota, and uh, it's we we hate Wisconsin and. Uh, I just remember being really pleased during that Rose Bowl, watching Oregon just curb stomp Wisconsin. Good times, good times. Of course, you're not interested in that because you don't care about the history of college football at all. Poser. I don't, I, I re- I don't really care that much about it. I, I don't. I, it's just, yeah, I, I really don't. Sorry. If you're not going to celebrate the history, about- why, uh, why talk about it? I think that's kind of... Well, well, that, well, that's not why I... Well, that's not why I like college football. I like college. I like I like the game of football. That fair enough. That's it. Fair I mean, enough. Th- um, that's why I like football, and and I like discussing the people that are currently playing it because we don't know what's going to happen. It's it's new, and when things that have already happened, I can I can understand and appreciate that it happened. I don't get a whole lot of joy and fulfillment going back and going in depth to discuss it because. Uh, it just doesn't really do much for me. But I I think it's good that there are people out there that do that because. That's cool for all those people that were living back then that there are people that will still talk about them and, and their accomplishments and the way they changed the game. And that's very important. But that's it, that's, you know, that's just my wiring is just weird that way. I don't know. Sure. 
uh, just just going over my list again. Uh, there, there's a couple other guys I thought were were too low. Uh, Pat White at 25, I thought was a little too low. Um, I think you know outside of Lamar Jackson, I think he's probably the most dominant runner from that position uh, that we've seen in the last 20 years. Um, my my first thought was Jason White was too low at 30, uh, but I I kind of went back and looked at some numbers, and I I I think 30 may actually be pretty generous for Jason White. Um, you know, other than that, I'm sure uh, guys who I thought were too high. I already mentioned Trevor Lawrence and Kellen Moore, uh, but another one that really sticks out to me, and this is one of the things that uh, hindsight has this uh, has really crystallized for me. I think Matt Leinart is way too high at 17. Um, I my my opinion on Matt Leinart uh, gets worse and worse the further and further we get from those USC uh, years. I, I just I don't think Matt Leinart at all was was anywhere close to being the best player on any of those teams. Um, and maybe I'm letting just his, his failure in the NFL stick out way too much in my head. Um, I, I just think, yeah, I mean, there's, there's clearly, I, I think, a bunch of guys who would have had just as much success or, or more success with that, that stable of guys at USC. Uh, I just, yeah, I don't think Matt Leinart's that talented, essentially. Even even though yes, yeah, I, I, I realize mean, that he he, I realize that he mud stomped OU. Uh, why is why is Kyle Trask on this list, number forty five, for his one year basically at Florida and like kind of half half of twenty nineteen where he was like good but like nothing special. Yeah, thought, like, why is a guy like that on you, this list? I thought kind of once you got down like into the thirties or in forties, it was you're kind of splitting hairs. A lot of these guys are just sort of like, yeah, you know, they were, they were pretty good players, but you can, you can kind of pick apart some parts of their game. Like there, there's guys like that up and down the list. Like one of my, uh, one of mine on here, I think is too high. It was, was Ken Dorsey. Uh, you go look at his numbers. That, that dude was just a game manager. He didn't really do much. Uh, he's at 34. Um, uh, Jalen hurts at 23. I said was way too high. Um, and of course, if you listen to this podcast, that's not a that's not a uh, a surprise to anyone. But uh, yeah, well, the I, thing I, is, I like, think... just it's it's very inconsistent about wha- how they're getting rated because Jalen Hurts is there because got to be because of his long career, right? And like all the wins, but nobody can really argue, with the exception of a couple of games here and there, that he was like the real reason why all those Bama teams are winning games, and then you know when OU was winning games. That's just not that's not what he was really. I mean, there was a like he he was uh, instrumental in the comeback against Baylor in the second half, but he was also instrumental in Oklahoma being down by as many points as they were going into the second half. So, I that that's just bizarre to me. It's like if you want to make the argument about how like you know Leinert, a lot of different guys could have done what Leinert did in theory with that talent around him. Well, the same could be said for Jalen Hurts too, at Alabama. There's a reason why he got benched in that title game. Uh, granted, Tua, he, he had a guy behind him that was a you know top ten draft pick, and a lot better than him, so that that definitely uh, helped out Hurts. But anyway, well, let's, so, let, yeah. let's be real. I mean, this is this is this is a really difficult list to make. It, it is. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I, I went through and debate. I couldn't. You know, I, I went through and I couldn't find really anyone that I thought you know definitely should have been on there. Like you can make cases either way, but yeah, like the five guys that I wrote down. Uh, when I was going through and looking at numbers and stuff like that, that that I think maybe had a case to be on the list are just three that I mentioned already. You know, Brandon Whedon, AJ McCarron, and Teddy Bridgewater, and the other two that that kind of stack up statistically that maybe uh, belong in there 
uh, are Bryce Petty from Baylor and uh, Stefan LaFors from Louisville. And I, and I, I doubt you probably remember him. Uh, but he, um, up until Bradford broke it in 2008, he held, he held the record for, uh, for passer rating in a season uh, at Louisville. So um, that's, that's really it. But de- I mean, definitely an interesting, an interesting list. I, I, I kind of think Bill Connolly probably came up with this list just to give us podcast uh, content. And so for that, I, uh, I really do appreciate that, but it's, it's always fun. <laughs> like these lists are always fun because it's just, it, it kind of, it crystallizes in, in my head, just the, you know, the 20 years of history that I've been watching college football. And like, I, I know exactly who every single one of these guys is. Um, I know exactly what years they played and I know. And so I just, it's, it's kind of fun. And like, uh, you know, you say that, you know, what you like about college football is you like just football. Um, I like college football for a lot of all the other kind of tertiary reasons. I love the history. I love the pageantry. I love kind of like the religious aspects of it. And, um, uh, that's, that's just kind of where I'm at. And so, you know, nib high football. Well, you're not allowed to like that stuff. So, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. You're going to have to stop like, no, uh, this list is uh, legitimate or this list is legitimized for, uh, in my mind, because number 55 is on the list. Todd Reesing from Kansas. I loved watching Todd Reesing play football back when he was at KU. He was really good. So it's a good thing that he is on this list because he is definitely one of the best, best quarterbacks of the last 20 years. No doubt. Yeah, about I thought, it. yeah. And I, I thought one of the, uh, one of the like one of the things he one of the changes he could have made was Mason Rudolph is in it is, is number fifty three and, and Rudolph had he had a good career uh, I would I, I would have put Whedon there instead if if you're gonna put one Oklahoma State quarterback it should have been Whedon in my opinion yeah 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 that's probably fair and also uh, AJ McCarron did I, I think actually did get a little slighted if you go his his numbers are good if you go and look at him his uh, his last two years as a starter he's he he finished top five uh, in in the country both years in in passer efficiency. Um, yeah, he wasn't uh, he wasn't that typical game manager Alabama quarterback. He he was more than that for sure. That's all I got. All right, that's all I have on it. Okay, great. Let's get out of here. Uh, we're, we're running long. Uh, by this time, I guess two weeks from now, yeah, we'll have a lot to talk about. We'll have some spring ball stuff, and then. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about Oklahoma being eliminated from the NCAA tournament in probably some annoying fashion or something. Uh, if, if they even make it, you know, they could lose to Iowa State tomorrow and somehow, no, nah, I'm, I'm sure they're probably in. But uh, yeah, it'll be a full show. Uh, any final thoughts, Grant? No final thoughts. Uh, excited for spring football to start. It's, uh, it's been a, the last, last month, month and a half has been, it's been kind of light and I don't, you know, I, I don't like it when college football recedes into the background. So it's, uh, it's time. It's, it's, it's been, it's been, uh, two months now since the end of the season and that's enough. <laughs> All right. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's it for today. We'll be back in two weeks right after spring practice has begun until then for Grant, I am Lee. This is West of Everest. <laughs>